Amen. Good morning. There's a metaphor here somewhere. Yesterday was a day of rain and darkness and isolation. Today it's sunny and we're all together. Praise God for that. One could preach such a picture, but I'm not going to. Instead, we're going to preach the Bible this morning. And I praise God for the grace that I've seen in uh, Brother Ben. I feel like the Spirit would like me to point out what a great job God has done through him. He really blessed me this morning coming here with his leadership, so thank you for that, brother. Um, I'm going to invite you to jump with me before you turn in your Bible. I want you to jump into it, into one of these stories. I want to just use your imagination and drop into one of the glorious narratives that we have for us in the New Testament. And uh, I want you just to imagine with me a story at the end of the book of John. There we see it's a, it's a spring Sunday evening there, and it's just days after you've watched your Lord and Savior Jesus be executed. He was your master, and yet he was falsely accused, arrested, and you saw him hung on a cross just outside of town. And since then, your life has been horror. You've been on the run. You've been hiding for the past couple of days, hoping and huddling with friends that you would not be trapped by the same Jewish leaders that took your king because they would love to have your neck in the same spot, hang you on a hill. Jesus warned as much would happen to his followers. And so this evening, this Sunday evening, you find yourself gathered with the other followers, the first followers, except for Thomas and that traitor Judas. He wasn't there, but the rest of you are locked in a room, locked inside of a house, there's bolts there and some sturdy beams inside some rings, so you know the doors are sturdy, and you know that you're secure for now, but you're scared. You're scared, and you're with your friends, and as you turn there to talk to one of your friends reclining, you stop cold, because there in your midst, Jesus the dead has just appeared. So you jump back. So much, so real that you think it's a ghost because you know the guy died and yet he's here. And yet he's not a ghost, he's physical. He's reaching out his hands towards you, not to take something, but to show you something. One palm stained with suffering, the other seared with victory and his defeat over death. And he shows you his side where he was pierced, guaranteeing that he had in fact died and you're overjoyed as he says these words that he's seen, said to you so many times before. He says, Shalom, Aleichem, which means peace be with you. And your heart just melts. Your soul flutters as he mutters these words and your whole being begins to yearn. It's going to be just like old times. Maybe he'll sit here and he'll feast with us and we'll just enjoy Jesus. Or maybe he'll teach us some crucial life lessons from the realm of the dead that he's been to. But surprisingly, he looks you right in the eye. Instead, he gives you some profound instructions when he says, Peace be with you. As my Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he takes some deep breaths. He cups his hands to his mouth when he breathes on everybody in the room. It's just like the Master to teach in such tangible ways and as soon as he says receive the holy spirit you know what he's 
picturing there. He's picturing God sending His Spirit on His disciples. And He begins to say some other things that night, but these words stick with you. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And you know after hearing these words that your life will never be the same. If you're like me, you enjoy jumping into Bible stories like that because you can remember what it is that our risen Savior wants from you. And you look for the true purpose in life, your true meaning. It's good to boil it down to interactions with Jesus Himself. And what a beautiful instance this was. When Jesus, the living Christ, interweaves His promise of rest with a command of mission. Peace be with you, because I have fully reconciled God and man together you will have eternal peace. While I'm making all things new, peace be with you. And yet, as I was sent by my Father, so I am sending you to announce and proclaim and to live out the kingdom of God. That is our mission. Your rest in me, says Jesus, pulsates into vigor and vim, movement and mission, sacrifice and sending. This is what our rest leads to. And today, as we finish up our final uh, section on our series entitled Rest, Quiet Souls, and Quickened Hearts, we're just going to look at one of these early followers of Christ and see how he rested in Jesus and how that rest propelled him to a life of mission. And in doing so, in living out mission for Christ, we actually see a greater picture of the gospel demonstrated. And we experience Jesus in real and new ways. So today we're going to look at Barnabas, title of the sermon. Barnabas, living sent to see the Savior. Living sent to see the Savior. And turn with me here um, to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts 11. We're going to begin briefly in verse 24. Barnabas is one of the true heroes of the book of Acts. and He's mentioned 23 times, and he's vital to the progress of the early church. How do we know this was a man who rested in Jesus? We've talked a lot about finding the rest under the rest, the deep spiritual calm and quiet that we all yearn for. How do we know that Barnabas was doing that? Well, verse 24 Within that verse in Luke, I'm sorry, Luke within that verse in Acts 11:24 packs a lot of meaning and we get this insight into who Barnabas was and how he rested. Look at verse 24 in Acts 11 where it said Barnabas was a good man. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. No one else in the entire book of Acts is called good besides Barnabas. turns out when Luke is using this adjective to describe to someone, he's not saying they're morally perfect because none of us can stand on our own righteousness. It's more like he's saying he's good in that he's doing good works. He's living sent. He's on mission. That's who he is. In Luke's gospel, he calls someone else good. It's, it's uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He's called good as he tenderly cares for the body of Christ when he takes him from the cross and prepares him for his uh, burial. 
Barnabas lives with such intentionality, with energy and enterprise. He is living sent. But what propels him? Well, the expression used of him in verse 24 is he is full of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. This very phrase is used of Jesus when he goes out into the wilderness to worship and fast and to be alone with God. Amazingly, the same phrase, full of the Spirit, is also used of Stephen at the point of his death. Even if he's being martyred, he's given a glimpse of the glory of the Lord and he's said to be full of the Spirit. That's who Barnabas was. He was resting. He's described in the very same way. He's also said to be a man of faith, meaning that he trusted in Jesus for his spiritual and his physical provision. So packed into this one sentence, we see that Barnabas' good works, his sentness, is connected to his rest in Jesus Christ. Now let's look how this rest played out in action throughout the rest of his life in the book of Acts. Turn with me back to Acts 4. This is where Barnabas is first introduced, Acts 4. And it's worthy to note that he enters the narrative in the context of his local church. Here was a man who rested in Christ, but he loved dearly his local church. He's here in the first church in Jerusalem. Read with me in Acts 4, starting in verse 34. Notice what's said about this early church and the impact that Barnabas had in it. Beginning in verse 34, read with me. There was not an e person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold those and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we see that Barnabas actually had another given name, a common name in Judaism, Joseph. But for most of the book, he's going to be named uh, using his nickname, Barnabas, which means son of comfort or one who gives encouragement. He wasn't from around here. He wasn't from Judea. He was originally from Cyprus, but he was a Jew. So that meant uh, he was ethnically Jewish, but culturally he acted like a Gentile, made him a perfect fit for the upcoming Gentile mission. And uh, we don't know when he arrived in Jerusalem, but probably sometime as an adult, he traveled from Cyprus, arrives in Jerusalem, hears the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe he was one of the 3,000 converted when Peter spoke. Regardless, he turns away from his sin, trusts in Jesus, and here we find him resting in Christ within the context of the local church in Jerusalem. He was a Levite. That meant he was well-educated, from the tribe of Levi, and probably had some money. Now notice here the compassion for his community. That's what I wanted to point out. His rest in Jesus results in compassion for his community. We see that in all of the church, everyone had their basic needs met because of the generosity and the compassion of guys like Barnabas who were giving of their own things. They were selling off their own goods so that no one would have need here. And even if we see compassion beginning in the church, Christian on Christian, we know that it moves beyond that. In Matthew 25, Jesus will stir us up to offer acts of mercy to strangers. 
And in Luke 10, Jesus explained and he expanded the definition of neighbor as anyone in their path who has need, especially those who are hurting and those who are weak. And of course, Jesus in Matthew 5 calls us to extend our acts of loving compassion beyond those just who love us to others, especially those who come to beg and to borrow. And when we contemplate Barnabas's phenomenal sacrifice of selling his property to aid the poor, we should understand that he is simply joyfully doing what Christ has sent him to do. How can we live lives of compassion today within our church? There's lots of ways to do this. As Sean mentioned, some people arrived here today with power in their homes. Some people arrived today without power in their homes. What an opportunity to invite someone to your home to eat or to take a shower or just rejoice that you have power. Or individually, throughout the week, maybe you can walk beside a struggling family in our community or you can volunteer to serve at the public schools or give rides to international students who wouldn't be able to get places without your compassionate care. Or more corporately here at TCC, you can tutor or mentor through Community Hope. That's an opportunity to show compassion, volunteer with Jobs for Life, or follow up with those who have visited us through our events. Or you can even work with career development here at TCC. Now, there's a lot of places where you can show the compassion of Jesus Christ and live sent as Barnabas did. But don't miss how when we live sent, we're actually displaying the gospel. We're displaying Christ to ourselves and to everyone. And showing compassion to the undeserving actually highlights and recalls to our own minds our own past spiritual neediness. Right? When you help someone who is needy, you picture the gospel. One way the gospel is described is God extending his sufficiency into your need. Listen in Isaiah 42, how the prophet there addresses us. And this is a good representation of who people were, who man was before God. Isaiah 42, 18. Listen for the neediness. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but he doesn't observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes. Such is the condition of man apart from Jesus Christ. But when we seek to show compassion to the needy among us, we have a physical, tangible reminder of how we ourselves were trapped in the holes of our unrighteousness. As we reach out to help another mired in the pits of life's sorrows, we recall how God came to us in Christ as needy ones and gave of himself. We see this picture again in Isaiah 43 of God coming to his people in that state of neediness. Isaiah 43:1 says, Fear not, says God, for I have redeemed you and I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, trials, right? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The great text for the flood we've just been through, right? Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not 
consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus Christ came as the Holy One of Israel and met us where we were broken. And He gave His fullness, His completeness into our brokenness so that we who were needy had all that we needed in Christ. All of our needs were met spiritually by His atoning sacrifice on our behalf. So much so that Paul can now rejoice in Ephesians 1.8 saying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Don't miss a chance this week to show off the gospel and compassion of Jesus Christ like Barnabas, living out compassion in our community. As we move forward in the life of Barnabas, we see more of the same stuff. Look with me in Acts 9. A little bit ahead in the story of Barnabas' life in Acts 9. And what we note here is Barnabas wasn't just sent to work with the needy among the saints. He was also sent to some scoundrels. He was sent to some scoundrels. In Acts 9, we get a picture of one of the nastiest men in the New Testament. He was named after a nasty king who was his ancestor. This guy's name was Saul. And verse 1 reminds us that Saul, even though he was a Jewish elite, was a killer. Remember earlier we talked about Jesus when he was with his uh, followers on the final day. What did he do? He breathed out, representing the life that the Spirit can give. Here we get a picture of Paul, and he's breathing something else. The New Testament says he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. Where Christ brings life and hope, this guy Saul brings death and despair. What Milton once wrote of Satan could be said of Saul. Hell within him, for within him hell he brings. He was a villain, and his role was to root out Christians from their home. Actually knock on the door, grab them, take them to jail where they'd be tortured, or even worse. That was the role of Saul. He was so hated that when he was saved, when he was turned by Christ in his miraculous conversion from darkness to light, he found himself without a country, right? Because the people he was working with, his old gang, didn't want him because he betrayed him. Now they wanted to get him. So he ran to the followers of Jesus and they didn't want anything to do with him either, right? He's the hatchet man. He's the one coming after us. He found himself without a friend, without a country because of the consequences of his sin. And that's when Barnabas enters the story. We pick it up in Acts 9, 26. We read, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Yeah, I bet he did, right? He attempted to join those guys, and they were all scared to death of him. Like spotted puppies in front of Cruella de Vil. They had a right to be scared. They didn't believe he was a disciple says the Bible. But, but Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord spoke to him and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, we see Barnabas living sent, living intentionally. This time, his tremendous faith in Christ allows him to take a risk that nobody else wants to take. Tim Keller says, when you rest in Jesus, 
there's never any risk to your real assets. When you rest in Jesus, there's never any real risk to your assets. Physical safety is ventured because it's not the ultimate to Barnabas, right? He can take risk. Barnabas knows that his eternal safety is captured and secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He reaches out and welcomes sinners that others shun. I've mentioned before the story of my grandfather. He died when I was a little fellow, and I didn't really know him, but I know of him through stories of my family. And uh, from what I've learned, before he met Jesus, he was a bit of a wildcatter. He was a rogue. He was a rough fellow. And as many of his generation, when he came of age, 1920, he volunteered to fight in World War II. So he went over there, an unbeliever, spent time there, made it back home, and sometime along that time, he was born again. He turned to Jesus, and people would come up to him and say, what's, uh, what's the deal, Glenn? I knew you before, and that's a different dude. What happened? Was it the war? Did you get shocked over there, and somehow you're scared for your life? And he would say, no. There was a man that I served with, just a regular Joe. And he would talk of Jesus, and he responded to every situation differently. He befriended me, and we were totally different. I was a rebel. I was a drunk. I was all these things, but he wasn't. And then one day, we were in combat, and he was taken, and I wasn't. He died there, and I came home, and I remembered the intentional witness of this regular Joe. He wasn't a paid evangelist. He wasn't some missionary sent to plant churches, but he was sent to live on mission for Jesus in his sphere of influence. We need people who reach out to the sinners. And when we do this, not surprisingly, we know that Christ himself used to slum with sinners, right? People get so mad at him. When Jesus first called Matthew, he joined Matthew at a feast with all the financial cheats of the day. They all gathered together. and People were astounded, right? In Luke 7, Jesus accepts the anointing of a sinful woman. Everybody's shocked. Luke 19, onlookers complain when Jesus actually went to the home of Zacchaeus, which was a guy everybody hated because he was a menace to society, because he was a tax collector. Pastor Kevin DeYoung explains Christ's willingness to bond with evil people by saying this, Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he winked at sin, or ignored sin, or even enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those who engaged in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. And I feel like as Barnabas was reaching out in his movement to Saul, a sinner not just a sinner, but also an enemy of Barnabas as he was reaching out to him when no one else would. I can't help but think Barnabas remembered how he was once an enemy of God. As the gospel says, we are all enemies of God, and yet God reached down and touched us, showed us open arms when we held up our fists instead. Again, Isaiah gives us a good picture of this. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59, a picture of who we were before Christ. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, writes Isaiah. Your hands are defiled with blood. 
Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. According to your deeds, God will repay wrath to his adversaries and repayment to his enemies. Our offenses against God are so severe that he promises wrath and punishment to we who are said to be the enemies of God. That's bad news for all who are God's enemies. But I praise God, Isaiah also gives us good news. The good news is all who turn to God and trust in the Lord will find hope. Isaiah says in 59, 19, that those who fear the Lord will see the glory of God like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, for a Redeemer will come. Jesus Christ came as our Redeemer, reaching out to us when we were God's enemies. So I speak now directly to those here. You might consider yourself an enemy of God because you know yourself. Perhaps you've done the unthinkable, something that has been unforgiven by everybody in your life. My word to you is Jesus is here for you. He died for all who believe in him. His arms are open. You can have his goodness where you are wicked. He will cover it up and you can have rest for your soul that you know you're longing for in Jesus Christ. If you are an enemy of God, come to him today and hope in all that Christ has for you. And if you're a believer, know that when you live sent to scoundrels today, you too can remember the goodness of God, how he came to you when you were an enemy of Christ and how he folded you into the very family of God. So we've seen here in the life of Barnabas, we've seen how he lived sent through compassion and community and also seeking out sinners. And now turn with me to Acts 11. That's the passage that we started at today. Acts 11. That's the next step we have in Barnabas' life. What's happening now in the context is as the gospel is swelling throughout the region of Judea, it's splashing over to the north in Turkey, to the city of Antioch. A revival breaks out and news just sprinkles down to Barnabas' church in Jerusalem. So they're here in the first church and they hear news of a church to the north, something's going on, the Spirit's working there. So this is what they decide in verse 22. The report of this revival came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Here we see the church literally sending Barnabas to the believers in Turkey. Sound familiar? very biblical of us at TCC to send people to Turkey as we regularly do. That's what the first church did here. And note, upon arrival, he made it his mission to freely note and promote the grace of God in others. That's what he did when he got there. See, the scripture says when he came and he saw the grace of God, what did he do? There's a lot of things he could have done, but he was glad and he exhorted them all in Jesus Christ. How was he able to do this so well that they begin to nickname him Mr. Encouragement? Here he comes. He's always saying encouraging things. Let's call him encouragement. How, what was the secret? We see it again. Verse 24. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In other words, he rested in Jesus Christ. 
Christ. And not only does he encourage the church at Antioch by pointing out the grace of God in their life, he also remembers the grace of God in the life of somebody who's not in Antioch. So he goes and he looks for this person. Read in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul, the terror of Tarsus. What would he want with him? And when he found him, he took Saul and he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met there with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. See what Barnabas did? He turned to someone who God was working in, in Saul. God had gifted Saul in a certain way that he hadn't gifted Barnabas. But what's interesting, the last time we saw Saul, 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 last time we saw Saul in the narrative was chapter 9, two chapters ago, when he was being introduced to the church at Jerusalem, and then we hear nothing of this major hero, great church planter. He drops out of the story for two chapters. It's as if he's on the sidelines in Tarsus. What's it going to take to get him involved? Someone sees the gift of God in him. Barnabas goes to Saul and says, I cannot do this. I see God working in you. Come and join me and we'll work together. I've been given gift, but God's grace in you. Come and we'll make disciples. And they did that. So much so that they begin to teach people about the grace of God. Knowing Barnabas, he taught them to point out the evidences of God's grace. And they were the very first people to be called a group of Christ. Christians. That's where our name comes from, is this very church where Barnabas was there promoting and noting the grace of God. And we happen to read this text in our community group this past Wednesday. In preparation, we're reading the text before we get to it in our sermon. And we, as we we're reading through this, we saw the Spirit of God work because the Spirit seemed to bring to mind God's grace in one of our group members. They were upstairs doing childcare, so we went up and got them. We said, look, God has reminded us of the grace we've seen in you, and we began to speak of it. And it was encouraging, and tears flowed, and it was great. And then we started asking ourselves, why don't we do this more often? Why don't we actually point out God's grace and gifting in one another? And we decided there's some barriers, right? It's not easy. First, pointing out God's grace in others tempts us to compare ourselves to that person. Particularly, our failures compared to their successes hurts a little bit, right? So we don't always want to point out God's grace in someone else. It's hard to say, I've seen God's grace in your parenting. If you're struggling with your own parenting, that's tough. Also, affirming the Spirit's work forces us to be thinking beyond the trivial, beyond the now, to the spiritual, eternal thing. Oftentimes our mind are just captivated by only the trivial, lighthearted things. If you're going to affirm God's grace in somebody, you have to have a spiritual mindset. Also, much humility is needed to speak of God's work in someone else because it turns the spotlight off of yourself, doesn't it? If you speak of God's grace in someone else, the spotlight is on them and specifically on God in them and not on yourself. And we all battle with that daily. But humility dominated when Barnabas said to Saul, I need your help. I can't do it alone. Come, to, come with me to Antioch, away from Tarsus. God has given you a great gift. 
and as with the other aspects of living sense, what we see when we speak of the evidences of God's grace and others is a great picture of the gospel. Our affirming of others reminds us of how based on the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit has come and transformed all of us. If we speak of the grace of God in one another, we're reminded that the grace of God arrived in a mighty way upon our regeneration and conversion. The grace of God overflowed. So much so that in Titus 2, Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So as we point out the grace of God in others, hey, I see the gift of hospitality in you. That's God's grace. You seem to really bask in the joy of the Lord. When I see you, I see the joy of the Lord. Praise God for that in you. The faith I see during your sickness, that's inspiring. That's got to be God working. When we say those things to one another, we picture the good news of God's grace coming and overflowing by the Holy Spirit and transforming us, sanctifying us into new creatures. And when we see that picture, we begin to rest anew in the freshness of the gospel. So as we looked at Barnabas here, We've seen him living sin through compassion and community and plumbing with those sinners and also through relational affirmation of God in others. And next, let's look in Acts 13. Acts 13. Again, we're skipping a couple chapters between Acts 11 and Acts 13. In those two chapters, a lot has happened. For one, King Herod in order to impress some people, has grabbed one of the closest disciples to Jesus himself, James, and he's had him killed, executed. So James, prominent leader among the disciples, has been killed. Peter was also grabbed and narrowly escaped the same fate. Praise God, Peter lived to see another day. And then it all catches up to Herod in these two chapters when God kills Herod for his blasphemy. It was definitely a time to pray, right? That's what the church was doing. The church at Jerusalem had gathered to pray. Oh, sorry, the church at Antioch, which included Barnabas from Jerusalem, in chapter 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. It was Barnabas, it was Simeon, who's called Niger, everybody had nicknames back then, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who was a lifelong friend of Herod, uh-oh, that was a hard guy to accept, right? He was there, though. He was praying. And then Saul, big bag of misfits, all converted, all now praying. And look what happened. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking, and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent Barnabas and Saul off. Again, we see Barnabas happy to be resting in the Lord. Scripture said they were worshiping. They were fasting. They were enjoying God together, this rest, this contentment. But resting wasn't enough. Note that. Resting wasn't enough. They would gather to scatter. They would gather for worship and then scatter for evangelism, discipleship, acts of mercy, church planting. They would gather, and then they would scatter. 
And verse 3 lets us know that Barnabas was once again sent, evoking the words of Christ himself when he said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. This time, Barnabas will begin a career would last a lifetime in international church planting, cross-culturally. He began it by going back to his hometown for a while, and then he jumped off to the unreached people groups of Galatia and planted church after church after church with Saul. Barnabas would make a few of these journeys. Then we move to Acts 15, where we hear the last of him. After that, we don't know what happened. He's gone from the Bible pages. But we do know from church history The record has it that he returns back home to Cyprus. He's living faithfully. He's interacting with some Jews there. And they turn against him as they did against Jesus. And history tells us he was burned at the stake. A life lived sent and well spent. But it was not without its risk. In his provocative book called Gaining by Losing, Durham pastor J.D. Greer addresses the question, are we today called by God, or are we sent on mission today? Here's his answer. He said, the question is no longer if we are called, only where and how. The question isn't if we are called anymore, it's only where and how. Ascending ministry always starts with a heart exam. Sending out people and giving away your resources, you see, will most often compete with your church's bottom line. It could be said, your family's bottom line. If you live sent in our culture today, it's going to affect your budget, among other things. But we need to ask ourselves, says Pastor Greer, are there mission fields in our backyards that can contribute to the global spread of the gospel that we've overlooked because they don't enhance the bottom line of our church or our families? The idea here is as we live sent to do evangelism or to do church planting, sending out church planters in North America or overseas, it will often cost us something. For the international missionaries that go, they often give up much. They often miss all of the important days of their relatives. They miss the birthdays. They miss the weddings. They miss the funerals of the grandparents and those close to them. Safety is often routinely sacrificed, as well as creature comforts. All of this reflects the gospel story, because what do we see in Philippians 2? When Paul begins to speak of what the gospel is, he reminds us that there was a time when Jesus gave up his heavenly position, his heavenly authority, to come down to reach man. Paul writes Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When you were living sent, there's a humbling, an emptying of yourself that reflects the glory of Jesus coming to his people where he himself was emptied. And it's clear as we read this text that Paul wants us to reflect not just on the death of Jesus, but on what it accomplishes. If we keep reading in Philippians 2, we read this in verse 9. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Watch what happens here in the life of Jesus. He is sent from the Father, comes down, He empties Himself, lives a whole life of being sent, intentional, on mission, and at the end of it, He is exalted, and He is resting with the Father, ultimately, forever. The same happens to us when we live sent today. We have to empty ourselves. We have to humble some, ourselves. We have to give something up, even if it's just time in our daily schedule to live sent. It takes that to live intentionality. But the promise is for us. We'll move from rest to being sent to ultimate rest again because the Scripture says that there will be a day that every knee bows, either out of fear or out of faith. Those of us who have lived sent intentionally for the glory of Jesus will bow in worship and we will rest in Him forever. That's my hope for us today. We see it so clearly in Barnabas. He lived with compassion in his community. He sought out different sinners to impact like Saul. He also went above and beyond to be a church planter overseas and he was affirming others about the grace of God he saw in their lives. All of these are possible in our life. So as we leave here today, I would love for you to just picture that room where we were earlier. The very room in which Jesus first appeared to his disciples. Picture what he would say to you if you were there. If he would look you in the eye and he would say, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am now sending you. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do pray a prayer of hope for us at Treasuring Christ Church. Hope that we would have the gall to answer the call of Jesus Christ when he says, I am sending you. And God, that's going to look different to each of us. Many of us will stay here in Raleigh and live sent and on mission in this community. But some of us must go. Some of us will live sent elsewhere in America as national church planters and some of us overseas, internationally, giving our lives among the unreached where the gospel has yet to go. And for all of us, God, as we live sent, I pray that we would see a clear picture of the gospel of the working of Jesus Christ, obeying your will, coming from having living the perfect holy life and then dying an atoning death on the cross so that all things will be made new, including his people. And that one day he would come and completely restore the cosmos. God, it's that gospel that we can proclaim in a physical way as we go and we live sent. I pray for the grace to do so. And may you give us rest in the going. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.